had a good time this week um, in Atlanta. I left here right after Sunday in morning worship and went to the airport and spent uh, over half the week with about 200 pastors and uh, other leaders uh, focused on worship. And some of the things I'm going to share this morning uh, come from that. Uh, Manny Mike Harlan, who leads worship for Southern Baptist, uh, led some conferences there. Uh, Tom Rayner, who was the president of Lifeway, and I led some conferences there. And Jared Wilson, who's a professor at Midwestern. And then we had a wonderful musician. If you're not aware of him, you should certainly look him up. His name is Andrew Peterson, and he was with us there as well. Um, and also... One day, um, my uh, administrative assistant, he got a text, and he texted me back, and he said, Hey, um, uh, Don Cathy, who's the CEO of (laughs) Chick-fil-A, which is in Atlanta, um, heard about our music tonight and would like to come. Is it all right if he shows up? So I thought about it a little bit and said, Sure. So uh, he was very pleasant and came, sat on the front row right next to my wife, and we had a great conversation about church replanting and revitalization, and uh, he was quite interested in our work and very supportive of it. It was nice to meet him, and he gave me a laminated card for a free chicken sandwich, so he actually did. <laughs> very nice guy. He came in, I knew, and someone said, how do you know who he was? Because he had a, the same Chick-fil-A badge that you would see the kid at the drive through wear. He had that on, and it had his name, uh, Don Cathy. President, CEO, Chick-fil-A. So there you go. So it's pretty nice to have him there. And good time to be with a bunch of uh, men and women who really care about the church and worship. And it's so cool because Mike Harlan spoke somewhat about this verse, the, the, the leader of Lifeway Worship for Southern Baptist. And I'm anxious to really unpack it and share it with you a little more. So chapter, 12, chapter 3, verse 12 But on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and as I said last week, enduring one another, putting up with one another as God puts up with us. If you have one complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And the idea that we can just receive forgiveness from God through Christ as we just experienced in this communion, and yet we can't forgive one another, we can't forgive our spouse, we can't forgive people who've wronged us, it's just, a, a, it's just abhorrent. And you look at it on the whole and you wonder, how does God even put up with us when we've been forgiven of so much? As you've often heard me say, those who've been dealt generously with should be the most generous, and no one's been dealt more generously with than those of us who've been redeemed. And so Paul makes it clear here, if you focus on the gospel, and the gospel is what Jesus has done, is doing, and will continue to do for you, and how you're worthy of none of that, and everything you have is a free gift of God, and he's forgiven you of all the stuff that you shouldn't have done, and all the offense against him because of what Jesus did when he came and suffered and bled and died for you and for me. And so how can we hold little petty things against one another when God has forgiven us and continues to forgive us of so very much? And so our our goal is to spend more time at the foot of the cross, more time thinking about Jesus and his love for us and what he's accomplished for us so that we're overwhelmed by thanksgiving for how much we've been given. And out of that grace, we're graceful to others. Listen, as I said before, 
If we're not getting along with one another, the issue is we're not spending enough time with Jesus. And the more we love Jesus, the more we'll love one another. And that's basically what Paul is saying here. So how do we love Jesus? Well, verse 14, above all things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And you do that and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body and be thankful. And how do you let the peace of Christ do that? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In other words, just what I said, spend more time thinking about the glory and the beauty and the wonderfulness of Christ. What do you think about when you've got nothing else to think about? Where does your mind go in those moments when you've got really nothing else to think about? For most of us, it goes to us, to ourselves. We focus on what we want and what we would like to have and the things we would like to accomplish. Or sometimes our thoughts go toward other people and how they've wronged us and jealousy of them and and envy of them. Yet let your mind dwell on Christ. And there's a discipline that comes to that where you focus on him and you think about him and you think about the things he's done for you and things he's going to do for you and the immense love he has for you. You know, we say it's a very common saying and it's a true saying that hurt people hurt people. And all of us are hurt. We've all been wronged by people. We've all had people fail us and stab us in the back. Some of us far more than others. And if we're not cautious and careful and aware, even as Christians, we'll end up lashing back out at people out of our sense of hurt. But if we focus not on our hurt, but on the one who heals us and has brought us to himself and loves us and forgives us, then we're no longer hurt. We're loved people. And loved people love people. So focus on what Jesus has done for you and what he's continuing to do for you and how much he loves you. And that's what Paul says. The, the, the point of this unity that we can have together is to let our minds dwell on Christ. And how do we do that? Well, he says here, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom through, and your version just may say comma, in all wisdoms, comma, singing songs, but actually your version may say through the singing of psalms. And actually, the, the better translation, the meaning there is really through it. You, you, you teach the wisdom of Christ through the singing of hymns and spiritual songs. As Mike Harlan reminded us this week, God has wired us so that music imprints in our minds. Have you ever been going down the road and you hear a song from the 1960s and immediately you're back there? Finish this for me. Like a bridge. Well, where did that come from? Oh, tie a yellow ribbon. Where did that come from? I could go on and on. Music embeds in us. And so what what the scripture is saying here is, Paul says, be one in Christ, focus on what he's done for you, and do that through admonishing one another through the singing of songs. It's not singing in church, singing as a believer, it's not not something you do if you like to do it. It's not something you do if you're good at it. Unfortunately, the biggest crisis, I think, in North American church today is we've created worship in a way that only the really good people sing. 
And the rest of us just listen. You know, of all the commands for us to do things in the Bible, the, the command to sing is more than any other. Over 200 times in the scripture, we're told to sing. How many of you know someone with dementia, severe dementia? You can, you can, these stories are so common. It's so obvious. It's, there's actually scientific reasons for it. But you can go to a memory care center where people can't remember anything, right? You've all been there. You see what I'm talking about. And you begin to sing a song and they begin to sing along just like you did. God has wired us so that there's something about music and singing that instills in us something that just doesn't go away easily. So isn't it obvious that the adversary doesn't want us to sing? At least songs about the gospel? Songs about theology? Songs about our condition? And I think when we sing songs in, in corporate worship, there, there are times we need to sing about our feelings Obviously, some of the psalm talk about the feelings that we have toward God, but we also need to sing theology. So we learn it in our hearts and in our minds because it embeds in us. And there have been so many times, you, you, we, we, I've, I've gone to folks who are literally at the point of death, and you have too, and, and you'll see a saint there, like my own mother and my own father, in the last few hours of their life as they were, life was ebbing away and we were all around them. We didn't read the church bulletin to them. We didn't even really read scripture to them. What we did is we sang with them. Played music, hymns, and songs that they knew. And so many times we've seen people at the very end of their life who, completely incoherent, begin to mouth the words to those songs. This is no small deal. And so when we gather together on Sunday, it's very important that we sing. It's important that we, we sing. And I know you think, well, I don't know how to sing. Look, Mike Harlan said this, and I loved it. He's got, he said, I got, I don't know how many kids he has, whatever, three or four. He said, I love it when one of them's there or two of them's there. They're all grown now. But he said, when we have three, but we don't have the fourth, something's missing. But when they're, when they, from all of you know, North America, when they all can get together in the room at the same time, all my kids are there. And it's, it's kind of like that when singing before the Lord, with the Lord. You know, if we're all not singing, something's missing. You alone have a voice no one else has. And again, I don't need to make, I can't make too much of this. I really think we have to re-examine because here Paul says, one of the ways we let the word of Christ dwell richly in us, one of the ways we forgive one another, one of the ways we live at the foot of the cross, one of the ways we're always aware of how much Jesus has done for us and how great he is and how needful we are is through admonishing one another through the scripture and through singing of songs. You can imagine these Christians getting together in the first century and singing together. And a lot of what Paul writes, Paul's a hymn writer. I don't have time right now, but when you go through his letters, just like here in Colossians, he'll just be writing, and all of a sudden he'll just burst into a song that he's writing, literally. And he's probably singing it. And as he sings it, and as those around him sing it, just like you remembered Bridge Over Troubled Waters and Tie a Yellow Ribbon, you, and it takes you back maybe to the moments and the times in your life when you first heard that song, and it was impactful to you as a teenager or a young person. God has wired us for us to be connected through music. 
Now, some of you, if you're not old, you're not going to be able to do this. But others of you, <laughs> just see if this, how this just comes rushing back to you. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. It doesn't matter what key we're in, really. It doesn't. An M. Let's start over. You ready? Because I know you're worried about the key. Don't worry about it. Just say it. Just say the words. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. The M. Blum of suffering and shame and I love that old cross for the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain so I'll come on a little louder Till my trophies at last I lay down, I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Think of all the theology you just said without even thinking about it. How those songs get into our heart and into our mind. And don't worry about what it sounds like when you sing them. There's something that edifies you and glorifies you when you sing them. There's nothing wrong with listening to people sing. But the scripture doesn't say, come together and listen to people sing. It says, sing. And for that very reason, it gets into our heart. It gets into our soul. We don't forget it. It becomes part of us. And just because you can't carry a tune doesn't make any difference at all. Years ago, when uh, Jill and I went to Canada, they asked me to go preach at a little, very little Greek church, Greek Baptist church in Montreal. And they met on a Sunday afternoon because they didn't have their own building. They met in the little Anglican church building. So I showed up to preach there with Jill, and there might have been 10 or 12, maybe, mostly widows, older ladies, and a couple of their sons who came with them. (laughs) One came to interpret, because the sermon, I was English, and they were Greek-speaking. But they didn't have anyone to play any instruments. And so when it came time to sing, and Jill and I, you know, we we haven't been in Montreal very long, uh, we're from Kansas. We don't speak French. Uh, it was a very different kind of place, and we were struggling, frankly. Um, you know, this was the year 2000. We didn't have GPS on our phones, we, so we couldn't read the street signs, didn't always know where we were. Um, I mean, it was, it was a, sh- a real culture shock we were in, and we were sent up there to plant a couple of churches, and it was much, much more difficult than we'd anticipated. And so that Sunday afternoon, we eventually find our way to this little Anglican church in the little neighborhood of Montreal and and, um, try to find a place to park. It's like any other city, like Boston or something. There's never a place to park. And and we walk in the building, and there's eight or 12 mostly elderly ladies and a couple of young men, one of them to interpret for me. No one to play the piano, no one to play the organ. It comes time to sing. And these dear ladies stand. And you've got to remember, 
that, first of all, Montreal has one of the largest Greek populations in North America, especially after the Second World War when Greece was really in difficulty. Many of them migrated to Canada and to Montreal. So it's a huge Greek population, but because these are believers of Christ who are Baptist and not Greek Orthodox anymore, the Greek Orthodox community, which is really strong in Montreal, they've given up a lot to become evangelical Christians, all right? I mean, that whole culture is gone to them. They've been pushed out of it, and they're in a culture of French Canadians, so that's not their culture. So they very are much isolated and alone. It's cost them a lot to follow Christ, is what I'm trying to say. And here they are. They haven't had a pastor in years, just whoever can come speak to them. But they still gathered. So there they were gathered in this little Anglican church building, a dozen or so of them, and it came time for service to begin, and they stood... And they just began to sing at the tops of their voices. And I mean this with, with all the tenderness that I have. And it's not to be humorous. They, they couldn't sing very well. They really couldn't. And, and Jill and I, at first, we noticed these, these, they weren't singing on the same key. They weren't singing very well. But they were singing loud. Because they were together. And they loved their Lord. And it cost them so much to be believers in that culture. And Jill and I both stood there and we just wept. I'd never, I've had very few worship experiences in my life like that experience. And all of a sudden, it didn't matter that we didn't speak the same language. We weren't from the same culture. We were from Kansas. They were from Greece. We were in Montreal in an Anglican church. They were singing in Greek and it wasn't even all that good how they were singing. But all of a sudden, they were, with, they were my family and I felt at home. And I felt like these women truly loved my Jesus. And the world can't do that. And I, I get the idea that that's, how, you know, that's what it means to love and care for one another. And we can walk into so many churches today, and I'm guilty of this, and we just sort of mumble through the worship service. And the scripture says, if you want to be a forgiving person, a loving person, a caring person, don't neglect the singing of songs. And do that with your children. So your kids, most of them, they're going to learn the alphabet. How? How did you learn the alphabet? By singing it, right? Some of you could sing the 50 states, you know. I'm not going to ask you to, but some of you could. It's amazing how music connects us to things like that. So don't lose sight of that. And I just wanted to really bring that home to us. And he says in verse 17, And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything... In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Again, as we said last week, Christ is all we need. He is everything. We don't need him in a philosophy. We don't need him in any other legalism, any other extra rules. We just need him and to know who he is in all of his abundance and all of his joy and all of his glory and all of his fulfillment. And then as we look at verses 18 and following... He's going to talk to us as we close this chapter out. He's going to talk to us about about the family unit. So we'll take some time here. We may may make this into next week as well, but let's read this together. You're familiar with this scripture. It's very often quoted. 
But listen, it doesn't stand out by itself. In other words, he's saying when Christ is all we, he's, he's our fulfillment, when we understand what he's done for us, when we love one another and care for one another, when we encourage one another through the singing of songs and reading of scripture, then this is what life looks like. This, this, it's not just our gathering together that we look different. We look different in our homes. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Now, obviously, we could spend all morning there, and I don't want to do that. You know, clearly, in the book of Matthew, it's very clear that you have to obey God rather than men. So this scripture is not saying that if the husband asks a wife to do something that's ungodly or unchristian or unethical or immoral, she has to do it. That's not what that means. What it's talking about here is that there's a new pattern, a new, a new purpose, even in marriage and the family because of what we just experienced. And there is a picture where the husband is ultimately responsible to the Lord for his family. I've had many weddings where the bride said to me, I don't want you to use that verse about submission. I, I get what they're saying, I, you know, I, I, the, the fear that they sort of have of that, but it's un, not understanding what the Scripture's saying about that. It's not saying the wife is less worthy than the husband. Look, Jesus submitted to the will of the Father, but he was equal to the Father. It's just it's a matter of, 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 of functionality. And the, the real issue here is as wives submit to the authority of, of your husband and his leadership, his spiritual authority, then it's husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And in Galatians, he says, as Christ loved the church. So he's basically saying in the home, because of what we've experienced in Christ, we take that into the home and the home is a place of order and purpose. And we all know what the role is. And then he says... Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And he says, fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath, lest they become discouraged. I mean, again, maybe we'll unpack this a little bit more next week. I I will do that. But I just want to go through it this morning, and then we'll take it piece by piece next week and do better justice to it. But he's talking about a holistic picture of what the Christian family looks like. There's order to it. There's purpose to it. There's meaning to it. And the family is so very important in, in, in our Christian life. And he talks about husbands and wives and children. Then he talks about servants. In, in this day and age, as we said before, perhaps a third to maybe a half of the households had some kind of servants. They might have been indentured. They might have been uh, uh, sold by their parents to, into, into service, servitude for a while. But there, there were servants in the household. So he goes and he talks to the servants. And he says, servants, obey your masters in everything. They are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but sincerity of heart and, and fearing the Lord. Do what's right. Don't just do it when they're watching you. And that's true as you're an employee as well. But he's talking here about in the home. And whatever you do, work hardly for the Lord and not for men. And this is true of all of us, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ for the wrong will be paid back for the wrong he has done and there is no partiality. And then he'll talk in chapter four about masters, treat your slaves justly, fairly, knowing you also have a master in heaven. So next week, Lord willing, we'll come back and we'll unpack those sort of one at a time. I want to give good meaning to them. 
But overall, what he's talking about here is because of what Christ has done for us, because he has saved us and redeemed us and claimed us of his own, because he's removed our sin forever, because he continues to wash us and make us clean, because our home in heaven is secured. We love one another. We endure one another. We bear one another up. We forgive one another. And we keep doing that as we continue to spend time in his word and encourage one another and edify one another and share with one another and teach one another through scripture and through teaching and through singing. And as we do all of those things, it moves into the home. And then in the home is a place of order where where we're all pleased to do what God wants us to do in, in the way God wants us to do it so that wives are not angry and bitter at their husbands so that husbands love their wives with sacrificial love and wake up every day and say, how can I serve her today? How can I make her life better today? How can I put her needs before mine so that children want to obey their parents so that fathers don't want to be difficult and, 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 and bring their children to a point of, of wanting to be disobedient and bearing down hard on them. And basically, I'm getting ahead of myself for next week, basically working out all their frustrations on their life, on their kids and on their wife. And all of this is impossible until you bring Christ into the picture. And when you bring Christ into the picture and you see that it's Christ that wants us to submit to one another and to the husband. It's Christ that wants the husband to love the wife. It's Christ that wants the the parents to to, to love and, and, and bring up their children correctly. It's Christ that wants the children to love and obey their parents. It's Christ in, in the midst even of the relationship of servant and master, employee and employer, all of those things. He is in all of it. He's not just something that's at church on Sunday, but you have him in the car on the way to church, in the car on the way home, and once you get home, Because he is all you need and he fulfills everything and he changes everything about our lives, including the most intimate relationships we have. So next week, Lord willing, we'll go through those one at a time and spend a little bit more time on them. But this morning, I hope you've heard the gospel over and over again. I hope you've heard once again that it's Christ that brings joy to our life, even in the midst of sorrow, even in the midst of trouble. He, these Christians were very familiar with that. Paul was in prison. He was familiar with that. He's not talking about rose-colored glasses pretending things are not bad. He's talking about the fact that the presence, the realized presence of the risen Lord in our life changes everything so that we can have joy even when people hurt us. We can have joy even when the future is uncertain. We can have joy even when we're staring death down the barrel. We can have joy because Christ has come. He has lived. He has died. He has risen. He's at the right hand of the Father. He has saved us. He has cleaned us up. He's promised to come and get us and receive us that where he is, we'll be also. He has sent his Holy Spirit to be a comforter with us, a comforter to us now who will go with us and never forsake us, not even in death. We have all of that. Every moment we live, every breath, we take we are all of that and more what more do we need other than Jesus but we've got to remind ourselves daily of that because Satan seeks to rob us of our joy and when he robs us of our joy we become petty and we become petty we become angry we become angry we're hard to get along with we're hard to get along with we don't get along with other people we don't get along with other people we don't glorify God we don't glorify God we become bad husbands and bad wives and bad kids and bad employees and it all breaks down but we start and we finish with Jesus And again, he's writing to these Colossians who the Greeks are one to add some philosophy. The Jews are one to add some legalism. I mean, one to add things. He says, no, don't add anything. Christ is enough. 
If you'll just drink him in, if you just live at the cross, if you just edify one another with scriptures and singing songs and worshiping him, you'll see that out of worship, you truly want to be obedient. I mean, when I was with those elderly Greek ladies and they were truly worshiping the Lord, man, I wanted to be obedient to Christ at that point. I didn't want to complain to my wife. I didn't want to be critical of people. All I wanted to be was with Christ. Worship brought me to the place where I wanted to be obedient. That's so vitally important. And yeah, we have corporate worship on a weekly basis or whatever, but you need to have individual private worship in your life every day. Some way that you, unique to you, worship the Lord. And it'll be different for all of us. But those things that draw you closer to him and make you think more of him, make you want him more, spend more time with those. You want some pra- well, something practical take away from this sermon? Whatever it is in your life that draws you more to Jesus and makes you love him more, do that more. And whatever it is in your life that tends to draw you away from Christ and make you think of him less and make you think more of yourself, do that less. And love one another. And when you can't love one another, love Jesus more. And when you can't love Jesus more, start singing. (laughs) Get a hymnal out or a songbook or something and start looking at the words and start singing. Get the psalm out and start reading the psalm. Read the gospels. And start thinking of all that he's done for you that he'll never leave you or forsake you. He knows everything about you, and he loves you anyway. Closer than a brother. Heavenly Father, how we thank you that you love us that way. How we thank you that you care for us in that regard. How we thank you, Father, that even though we're not worthy of any of it, you reached out in love and saved us and continue to save us. Father, forgive us when we grow petty and short with one another. We become difficult in our marriages and our families and with our employees and our kinfolk. Lord, all of that's because we're not just filled up with you. So forgive us, Lord, when we haven't read your word, we haven't spent time in prayer, we haven't worshipped you individually, we don't come and corporately worship you, we just come and observe. And then we wonder why our hearts are cold and our marriages aren't good and our relationships at work are rough. Father, it all goes back to you. You are all we need. So those things in our life that make us want you more and think of you more, may we do those more. Those things in our life that cause us to want you less and think of you less, may we do those less. And even this week, Lord, bring to our mind, what is it we think about when we've got nothing to think about? And may we dwell on your richness. May we even sing songs to ourselves. What a wonderful thing it is to just sing to ourselves about the glory of God, about the gospel about some simple songs we learned as children. I thank you, Father, that you've wired us as individuals for music to have such an important part in who we are, for singing and for songs to embed really in our very heart and soul truths that can go on for generations, even after our mind perhaps has degenerated to the point that we can't really communicate. There's still something there about music. May we see the glory in that tool that it is for us to love you more and know you.